Welcome, everyone. It's good to see everyone that's come to be with us this morning. We appreciate your presence so very much. I've enjoyed very much worshiping with you so far, and I do consider it an honor to speak concerning the Word of God, and I hope what we have to consider would be edifying and encouraging and helpful to you in some way. As you see on the screen, the title of our lesson comes from the Great Sermon on the Mount as we continue our series and the next passages of Scripture that we're going to deal with. In verse 28, Jesus deals with the concept of adultery in the heart. I want to say something before I begin this lesson, though. There are things in this lesson that make me very uncomfortable speaking about in the pulpit. I'm just going to tell you that in advance. Whenever these are things that are the subject matter, it makes me very uncomfortable speaking in this position of the pulpit. I'm going to do my very best to be respectful of that. But this is something that's very important, and this is something that Jesus knew about a long time ago that's an issue. The concept of adultery in the heart. Let's begin with a passage found in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In this passage here, Jesus had already dealt with, right before this, he talked about murder and he talked about anger. And Jesus said something very interesting. They understood under the old law of Moses, it was commanded, you can't commit murder. But what did Jesus say? He said, but I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause has already committed murder in his heart. In other words, the Lord's point was this. Murder stems from the heart. Please get that. Number two, so does adultery. It stems from the heart. And if we understand that concept, we understand what the Lord was saying here. We understand that what he was trying to get at here. If you go back to verse 27, though, this is what he said about adultery. He said, you heard that it had been said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. What Jesus is doing here, he's accurately quoting the seventh commandment. And that's found, we know, in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. But it didn't just exist and it didn't begin just with the Ten Commandments. It has always been this way. In fact, it was this way all the way back to creation. When God had created Adam and Eve, and he said he made them one flesh. Just a little side note here. When you go back to the creation, I'm going to be very brief about this. I'm not going to belabor this point. We know the story. When God created man, what did he do? He looked down upon man, and he looked down upon man's loneliness, and he gave him an antidote for that loneliness. He said, I'm going to make a helper for him. And when he caused him to fall into a deep sleep from his rib, he made the woman, he brought the woman to the man. Remember what the man said to her or about her. The man said, Adam said, she is now bone of my bones. She is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And then he said this, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall be or become one flesh. What does one flesh actually mean? It actually means to be glued together to one inseparably. That is the marriage relationship, and it's a beautiful thing. 
And that's why the marriage relationship must remain pure. It just has to be. Because when you become one flesh, there's no greater relationship in all the world than the marriage relationship. There's no closer relationship in all the world than the marriage relationship, and it must remain pure. What did Paul say? Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? And by the way, this is right after Paul said, now, just a little side note here, there's a lot of debate on whether Paul was ever married. And some say, well, under the law of Moses, if he actually was a Sanhedrin member, one of the requirements was to be married, so he had to have been married if he was an actual member of the Sanhedrin. Others say he was probably a hired gun of the Sanhedrin, so it doesn't matter. And I'm saying this, it doesn't matter. All I'm saying is this. By 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he was not married. If he was married before, then his wife is dead. And what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 regarding remarrying when your spouse dies? Paul said, I would that everybody was like me. In other words, remain unmarried and focus on and concentrate on the cause of Jesus Christ. Is there anything wrong with marriage? Absolutely not. Then he said this, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. That's what God gave Man for those things. Let me say this too. Marriage is the most primary of all human relationships. Say that again. Marriage is the most primary of all human relationships. And then I'm going to make a very bold statement. I'm going to clarify it. No sin is any more devastating than adultery. I didn't say there's no sin worse than adultery. Didn't say that. Because you know what we do? We classify and categorize and we rank sin as great and small and big and little. God didn't do that. Sin is sin. We get that. And while that's true, there's something else we need to remember. While sin is sin in the eyes of God, sometimes, sometimes the consequences of certain sins are greater than the consequences of other sins. Okay. Why is adultery the most devastating of all sins? Four reasons. Number one, adultery destroys trust between husbands and wives. Number two, it subjects innocent children to grievous pain. Number three, it mocks the veracity of the marriage vow. And number four, it destroys the symbolism of Jesus Christ in the church. It is the most devastating of sins. Okay. But let me just say this, though. What is it? What is it? It is unlawful sexual relations with the spouse of another, according to Mr. Vine. That being said, let me say this. In verse 32, Jesus talks about adultery being the only scriptural grounds for divorce. The only one. And that's in verse 32. It's a serious matter. And by the way, I'm going to tell you this. There's only two things. Please get this. Only two things in all the world that separates marriage in the eyes of God. Number one is when your spouse dies. You're not married anymore. Number two is adultery. And when the innocent party decides to or chooses to put the guilty party away, he or she can. And that is scriptural according to verse 32. But there's only one exception. And we know that. Okay. Jesus dealt with this very important matter of adultery. But then he said this in verse 28. Now remember, 
Adultery is unlawful sexual relations with the spouse of another. In other words, it involves two people. Please keep that in mind as we look at the next verse. But then Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. First of all, he says, but I say to you. With these words, Jesus is manifesting his authority as he's equating adulterous thoughts with adulterous actions. Now, if you go to the 10th commandment, the 10th commandment condemned coveting your neighbor's wife. That's true. It's always been wrong. But under the old law of Moses, there was no legal recourse for such a thought, unlike the verifiable act of adultery. But what Jesus is doing is, in this passage, he is equating adulterous thoughts with adulterous action as a sin before God. It makes one guilty before God. He was not correcting, by the way, scribal misinterpretation of the law. He was laying down new and authoritative law. And that new and authoritative law was this, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. What did he mean? What does that mean? As murder stems from an impure heart, so does adultery. Okay, but remember this. Please get this. Some people look at this passage and they say, oh, if you have the impure thought, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Therefore, the other party or your spouse can put you away for, for adultery. No, they can't. No, they can't. The act of adultery is what separates the marriage tie. The impure thought is a sin and it leads to something more on that in just a moment. It is a sin and it's wrong. But it doesn't give the innocent party the scriptural grounds to divorce over an impure thought. The mind is everything. Your thoughts need to be pure before God. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here's another passage. I love this passage. It was right after Paul gave the antidote for anxiety. He said the right kind of prayer, right? You pray about everything. He gave the right kind of structured prayer in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4. Love that passage. But then he said this. In verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. I love how the, King James, the New King James says, meditate. The Old King James says, think on these things. But the word meditate here is a stronger act. It's a stronger thinking. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, the word meditate always is a demonstration or always manifests itself in action. This is brilliant what Paul said here. What Paul is saying is, if I meditate on things that are pure, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to do that which is pure. You can't do, boy, you've heard me for years. And man, you've heard me say this, I'm saying it again. You can't do two diametrically opposite things at the same time. You have to stop doing one and do the other. You can't think of two diametrically opposite things at the same time. You have to stop thinking of one to think of another. 
So if you're having impure thoughts, I say this as a general statement, if a person is having impure thoughts, the way you stop having impure thoughts is to meditate on pure thoughts. And it will demonstrate itself or manifest itself in pure living. The Lord was brilliant. He was brilliant. And so was Paul, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. The verse that Jesus is talking about here in our passage, folks, he's going beyond the carnal act and he takes issue with the root of the problem. And I'm going to tell you something. Do you know why we have a hard time sometimes? We can even preach against the problem. We can preach against the problem till we're blue in the face. Have you ever stopped to consider that even with all the things we say to try to change the problem, that oftentimes it changes nothing? You know why? Because we're not getting to the root of the problem. If a person has a problem with an act, and he keeps participating in the act, I'm being very respectful with my words here, the problem is, if you're doing that and you're continuing in that, you're not dealing with the root of the problem. Jesus says the root of the problem is the impure thought. It's the impure thought. Oh, the thought is so important. What about James chapter 1? But each one when he's tempted, notice please, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and desires. No sin has been committed yet. Did you see that? That's called temptation. How do I know that you can be tempted and not sin? Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. What is temptation? Temptation is one that is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. It's the enticement, but you haven't committed a sin yet. Notice when sin enters the picture. Notice when desire has conceived, that's where it begins. In the mind, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death or spiritual death or separation from God. What did Peter say also in 1 Peter 2 and 11? Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, oh, this is important, abstain from fleshly lusts. Why? They war against the soul. You know what that word war means? It's a military word. And don't take it lightly. The word actually means to carry out an all-out military campaign. That's what it means to wage war. You know what lust will do to you, to your soul? It is an all-out military campaign against your soul. So, what did he say? He said, flee youthful lusts. Stay away from those things. Abstain from those things. By the way, some translations say flee. You know what flee means? comes from the Greek word that I think it's fugo. I'm not a Greek scholar. I can't pronounce all those words properly. But I don't know. I think it's fugo. You know what it means? It means to run for your life. It's the word that we get the English word fugitive. You know what a fugitive does? They run. A fugitive from the law, you know what they're doing? They're running from the law. You stop running from the law when you're guilty, guess what? You're getting caught. You stop abstaining or fleeing from fleshly lust, guess what happens? You're going to get caught. Okay. But what is this? What does the word look actually mean? What does that word actually mean? The look that Jesus condemns here is not a look of admiration, and it's not a look of affection. And by the way, it's not even this. It's not even when somebody says, she's really beautiful. Oh, look, she's beautiful. That's a beautiful lady. 
It's not even when a, a, a lady looks at a man and says, uh, that's a handsome man. It's not the look. It's not the look, and it's not the recognizing of somebody's beauty. That's not the look that Jesus condemns. What is the look? According to Mr. Broadus, the look is this. It's an intentional looking for the purpose of stimulating an impure desire. That's the look. It doesn't refer to incidental or involuntary glances, but a continuous gaze. Sin is not produced by the temptation itself but by the response of the believer to it. Now, have you ever stopped to consider when you're tempted with these sorts of things or you're tempted with anything? Have you ever stopped to consider when you avoid illicit desire? You avoid it. You reject it. You withstand the test and you don't give in. Have you ever stopped to consider when you maintain purity after you've been tempted to not be, but you withstood the test, how spiritual growth even happens after that? Have you ever stopped to consider the blessing of withstanding temptation and making it through and not giving into it? Positive things. I'll tell you something, folks. Temptation is dangerous. It is. And we don't want to put ourselves in compromising situations where we're going to be tempted and hope we don't fail. I remember the younger we are, and I'm just not picking on young people. Me too. Me. The younger I was, I thought, as a young, young person, I'm really strong. You know, you know the older I got and got a little wisdom, you know what I come to realize? Oh, no. I need to avoid the temptation. Not, I can handle it. I can handle it. I'm right in there. No. That's why Proverbs says, refrain your foot from their path. Run in the opposite direction. Flee from it. Run like crazy. Because these things war against the soul. Be very careful. But you know what? You can have great growth that results from the temptation. James chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those that love him. What does it mean to be approved? The word approved means this. Something tried and proved genuine, a tried and true Christian. Great stuff. J.W. Roberts sums it up like this. When a Christian endures the temptations and trials that come his way without growing weary and quitting, nor being fatally captured by Satan, he will receive the reward. Wonderful. But, on the other hand, if lust is allowed to remain, if lust is allowed to remain, sin will compound. Not may, not a chance, it will. You know, a good example of this, I don't have time to go into the story. I'm going to give you one passage, because I don't have time to go into the story. You know the story, David and Bathsheba, right? We know the story. Look at the passage, and look at when the sin occurred. Notice, 2 Samuel 11 and 2, Then it happened one evening that David from his bed uh, uh, um, arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. Still no sin yet. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. In itself, still no sin left. 
yet. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. The sin wasn't the fact that he went to the roof. The sin wasn't the fact that he noticed a beautiful woman bathing. The sin was the impure thought that he had in his mind and what it produced and all the things that happened after it too. It began in his mind. He sinned in his mind. Lust. Now, folks, I don't know if you have thought of this before, but no passage of Scripture is any more applicable to the modern Christian than this one. You know why? Explicit movies, print media. And I'm going to say it, pornography. If you don't think that pornography is a problem, I'm going to say this. It's one of two things. I'm going to be kind first. Kind and gentle first. If you don't think pornography is a problem among us, then you are innocently far removed from reality. Innocently far removed from reality. Maybe you're an older person and you're just removed from that reality. And if that's the case, good for you. Maybe you're a young person and you still have innocence and you're far removed from it. And that's wonderful too. Okay? But for the rest of us, if we don't see it as a problem, I'm going to tell you what we're doing. We are burying our head in the sand and we're refusing to see the facts. I'm going to share something with you that's very startling. And by the way, I'm talking about pornography even to the point of addiction. This affects the entire religious world as well. There was an article written. These are startling statistics. These are Christian professing men. These are men that don the church houses throughout America. Professing to be Christians from all walk of life. Here are pornographic addiction statistics. And this is uncomfortable for me, but we have to talk about it. Let's begin with the ages of 18 and 30. Christian professing men between the ages of 18 and 30. 77% looked at pornography at least monthly. What else? 36% view pornography on a daily basis. 32% admit to being addicted to pornography and another 12% think they might be. That's 18 to 30. Somebody might say, well, that's in their youth and they grow out of it, right? Not so fast. Here's the ages of 31 to 49. Christian professing men. 31 to 49. 77% looked at pornography while at work in the past three months. 64% viewed pornography at least monthly. 18% admitted to being addicted to pornography and another 8% think they may be. So a person might say, well, these are single men, right? Married Christian professing men now with families. Notice what Jesus knew. Please, please, please notice what Jesus knew. 
where one thing stems from another. Please notice this. Married Christian professing men with families, 55% looked at pornography at least monthly. And of that 55%, here it is, it's what Jesus knew, 35% had an extramarital affair. Adultery stems from the heart. You know, these are startling statistics. But back in the old days, I guess I'm old enough to say the old days. The old days. If a person had a desire to look at that kind of thing, they had to go to a store somewhere and perhaps go into an adult section, whatever, or go to some place for that. Not anymore. You know where people can get it now? Cell phones, as easy as that. And I'm going to tell you something else about cell phones. Cell phones are wonderful and they are rotten. You know, i got to tell you, you can use, do wonderful things with cell phones. I love the fact that you, it's a Google age and you can find out anything you need to know on the phone. I like that. In fact, in the old days, you know what preachers used to do? I remember Don King telling me, you know what I do, Frank, when I go to Bible study? All my whole life, I take a Bible and a concordance. Well, guess what? I don't even need a concordance anymore. I take a Bible and my phone. You know why? Because if there's a passage of Scripture out there that you just don't know, you don't, even have, you don't even need a Bible app. If there's a passive scripture that you know what it says, but you can't remember where it was, just type in a couple words and bam, it's right there. So these are devices, electronic devices that are good and bad. Because of youngsters having readily, readily, ready access to this stuff, did you know this? The average age a child first sees internet pornography is 11. Doesn't that scare you a little bit? Doesn't that worry you a little bit? Eleven. Let me tell you how bad pornography is. Let me tell you how bad pornography is. In this article, the sheer volume of pornographic content now available is staggering online. 40 million United States adults regularly visited pornographic websites in 2022. Let me notice with you what it does. Recent studies have revealed that exposure to pornography is formative, lasting, and unhealthy. Its destructive force actually, get this please, it tricks and rewires the brain and influences relationships. And pornographic addiction is real. I'm going to say this because it's true. I am not an expert at all in addiction. I'm not an expert on battling addiction. I am not. And I'm going to say a very bold statement. You may not like it. I think it's the truth. In general, with exceptions, but in general, we in the church are very ill-equipped to deal with addiction. We are. We're very equipped to deal with sin, go to the Word of God. But we are ill-equipped to deal with addiction. Uh, the age-old, well, you haven't, you're addicted to that stuff or that substance. Or, oh, just stop doing it. Thanks. 
Let me just say this as I'm not an expert on addiction. If you or anyone you know is having a problem with addiction, get the help you need to battle that addiction. All that being said, I'm done with that. Now I'm going to talk about what I can speak about. I can talk about now how to eliminate the problem in advance. I'm going to talk about now how to have a preemptive strike on these lustful things and things that we need to avoid. I'm going to make this statement, and then I'm going to give you the Bible passage where I got it. Here it is. Every Christian, both male and female, must make a covenant with his eyes or her eyes to resist sexual uh, temptation. You've got to make that covenant with your eyes in advance. I'm not doing that. You want the Bible? I'll give you the Bible for that. I borrowed it from somebody else in the Bible. Here it is. Job 31 and 1. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? I'm not going to do that because I've made a covenant with my eyes. In advance. In advance. By the way, if you've done that, you won't be ever tempted. Because you already made the covenant with your eyes. It's not going to happen. Here's another passage. Psalm 119.37. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Turn away my eyes. Make a covenant with your eyes. Here's another one. Flee also useful lusts. 2 Timothy 2.22. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Notice the word flee. That's that word again. It's fugo. It's where we get fugitive. you got to run from it. Got to run from it. You know, just because we fail, just because we fail doesn't mean the Bible failed at all in giving us the principles to live the proper life. Just because we mess up doesn't mean the Bible is flawed at all. It's perfect. Any flaw comes from us. What the Lord is emphasizing here, it's not just the physical act of adultery or fornication, that's a sin, and yes, that's a sin, but also the fantasizing of itself of it as well. What is fantasy? Fantasy is the mental enjoyment of a sin not yet committed in the flesh. That's a sin too. And these things have to be driven from the Christian life. Now we're going to look at verses 29 and 30. We'll look at them together. Amazing passages here that Jesus now speaks of. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for all your whole body to be cast into hell. What's he saying here? The Lord is showing the seriousness of sexual impurity by two very astounding illustrations. And taken together, remember this point, please. When taken together, they show the progressiveness of lust. As one man said, what is seen in the eye and enjoyed with the mind will often be acted upon with the hand or by the action. Don't you see? It's going back to you. You got to kill the thought you got to kill the impure desire. What did Jesus say to do then? He says these words, pluck it out and cast it from you. What he's saying is this. This is what he means. He doesn't mean i got to reach in my eyeball and rip it out. It doesn't mean that. Or i got to take my hand and, and cut it, right hand, and cut it off. It's not what he meant. What he means is this. He means anything that ensnares the Christian must be radically removed. That's what that means. Whatever that is. 
But why the illustration of the right eye and the right hand? Under Jewish culture, the right eye represented the very best sight of a man under Jewish culture. The right hand represented the very best skill of a man. So if somebody under Jewish culture lost their right eye or lost their right hand, it would be very tragic. Don't you see what he's saying? He's using hyperbole. He's using illustration, figurative language, hyperbole, extreme exaggeration here for the purpose of establishing even if as tragic as it was to lose your right eye or your right hand, it would be worth it to not lose your soul and be saved. He's not advocating ritualism or self-mutilation because, as one man said, the point, of the, mount, the point is this. No amount of physical mutilation will cleanse the heart. So that's not what he meant. It's figurative language showing the seriousness of sin. Jesus was basically saying the same thing that Paul said in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to, to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, notice, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does that mean? Put to death also is translated in some translations mortify. What does it mean to mortify or put to death these things? It means put to death or mortify remaining sin. That's what you got to do. How do you begin with that? In the mind. First. It begins in the mind first. Now, folks, please hear this. Sin is not mortified when it's merely internalized. What's that mean? Sin is not mortified when it's merely internalized. You could say, wait a minute, I don't commit that sinful act anymore. I don't do that anymore. But if you ruminate or reflect deeply in your mind on the pleasures and joys of that sin, you have not mortified it, you have not dealt with it, you've just put it in the private sector, you put it in the personal sector, you put it inside, you've merely internalized it. You know what's dangerous about that? I'm going to tell you right now, sin will leak out. Sin will leak out. I used this illustration several years ago in an old sermon. I don't even preach anymore, so I'm going to use it now. It's in this one now. Edsel Matsky, 37-year-old, was walking across LAX International Airport a number of years ago. He was 37-year-old. He was slim. He was healthy-looking. And he's walking across the airport, and he drops dead of a massive heart attack. 37-year-old healthy men don't drop dead of heart attacks for no reason. When they did an autopsy, they opened up his stomach. You know what they found? 11 balloon-like containers. And in those 11 balloon-like containers was a half a million dollars worth of cocaine. You know what happened? He internalized it. One of them busted open, or more. And the drugs leaked out, and he died of a massive overdose. That, he was one of those drug mules transporting drugs. That's what happens when you internalize sin. You haven't dealt with it. 
And when you internalize it and you ruminate or reflect deeply on the pleasures of a sin you no longer commit, it's only a matter of time will leak out. One more thing. One final thing. Sin is not mortified until the conscience is appeased. Until it's dealt with. Folks, you have to deal with it. The conscience has to be properly educated. But I want to talk about guilt for just a moment. I know our society says guilt is bad. No, it's not. Guilt is normal and natural. It is the healthy pangs of guilt that cause us to make changes for the good. If I committed a sinful act or a bad thing and I had no conscience against it, guess what? I'm going to continue down that path. But if I have an educated, tender conscience, guess what? When I'm guilty, I just fix it. Because you know what? Jesus wants us to be guilty. That goes back to the Beatitudes. We've studied that in detail. But he doesn't want us to live in perpetual guilt. He wants us to have an answer and an antidote. And what does that mean? It means get those things right. Make it right. Face it head on and get it right. Make it right before God. And do away with those things. That's what God wants. And you know what's amazing? First Peter 3.16 Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. I want to talk to you about shame for just a moment. If you've been forgiven, there is no shame. When you have mortified or put to death the sin... And you have not just internalized it. You've dealt with it. You've fixed it in the eyes of God. There may be some consequences, sure, because that's just the way life is. But the shame is gone. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, when John says, Confess your sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know that cleansing from all unrighteousness? It means literally even the contamination of the sin is gone. That's the shame. It's gone. No shame. So guilt is not bad, it's good. Not to live in perpetual guilt, so it spurs us on to change it and fix it and move on. And when you obey the gospel and your sins are washed away at baptism, anything you've ever done in the past is gone. And there is no shame. When you commit a sin after your baptism and you confess that before God and you mortify the remaining sin and you deal with it and your conscience now is appeased, guess what? There is no shame. It's gone too. It's gone too. In conclusion, what have we learned? Oh, I hope we learned several things. But I'm going to sum it up in three things. Three things. If you got nothing else from this lesson, please get these three things. What did we learn from Jesus? Number one, not only the act, but the thought behind the act is a sin. Remember that. That's why Jesus brought in new authoritative law. And he says, but I say to you, here's something else. The sinful thought often manifests itself in sinful acts. So, no sinful act will ever occur if our thoughts are pure. What's the whole lesson? Keep your thoughts pure. Meditate on those things. 
you will eliminate the other stuff and you won't be guilty of falling astray and falling into those horrible things that we spoke about today. I'm finished. Thank you for your very kind attention to these very sobering things. And like I said, I don't like talking about this from the pulpit, but it has to be talked about. It needs to be dealt with because you know what? People are people and it does affect all of us. So please be aware. Keep your thoughts pure. We never close a time that we assemble and teach from the word of God without extending an invitation for somebody that might be subject to the gospel call. What's the invitation to be saved? It's very simple. You got to hear the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. After hearing the word of God, it's going to produce something. We have to believe with all our heart. Believe what we've heard, Hebrews 11 and 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What else? Jesus says you got to change your life. you got to change your mind. It all begins there. you got to repent of your sins, Acts 17 and 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. What else? We have to be willing to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts 8 and 37. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. These things are prerequisites to go to the point of salvation. But the point of salvation is at baptism for the remission of our sins. We have to be baptized for that purpose. Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. If you've never taken those steps of obedience, we would love to assist you in that. We're ready to go. We'd love to do that for you today. Maybe you have taken those steps. Maybe there's something in your life of a public nature that you need to correct. If that is the case, then repent of those things. Confess those things. We'll pray with you and for you, and God will forgive and restore. Be one of either class. Come forward while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.